John Chow was a 26-year-old American missionary who was killed on November 16, 2017, on North Sentinel Island. North Sentinel Island sits east of India in the Andaman Sea and is a part of the Andaman Island chain. North Sentinel is home to the Sentinelese, widely considered the most isolated people in the world. The Sentinelese do not welcome visitors. Anyone who lands on the island is shot with arrows. The Indian government has outlawed visitors to the island in order to protect these indigenous people from diseases that might wipe them out. John Chow, though, was determined to share the gospel as he understood it with the Sentinelese. He grew up attending the Assemblies of God. He graduated from Oral Roberts University, and he was known by his friends and family as a thrill seeker. He he visited the Andaman Islands four times in 2015 and 2016 and made contact with the local faith community on that island chain. In 2017, he enrolled in a missionary boot camp run by All Nations, a Kansas City organization that works to see Jesus, quote, worshipped in every tongue, tribe, and nation. According to their website, All Nations urges Christians to inculcate a wartime mentality and, quote, make strategic decisions in the battle we're waging against a real enemy. While training with all nations, John Chow confided in his friend Ben his desire to save the Sentinelese people. I was impressed immediately that this was something no one but God could relieve him of, Ben writes. He had already heard all the arguments of why this was a fool's errand and would jeopardize any mission associated with it, let alone the lives of the individuals involved. According to Ben... John's desire was a sacred trust for him that no amount of reasoning would rest from his grasp. In November 2017, John Chow, helped by local fishermen from the Andaman Islands, traveled to North Sentinel. They traveled by night in order to avoid coastal patrols. Refusing to go closer, the fishermen anchored off the coast, leaving John to paddle to shore by kayak. On his first approach, several Sentinelese rushed out of a hut with faces painted yellow. My name is John, he shouted from the kayak. I love you and Jesus loves you. When they began stringing their bows, John panicked and fled according to his diary account. Later that day, he made a second attempt and successfully landed on the island. He was allowed to leave gifts, sing worship songs, and preach from Genesis for a little while. He left after a little boy's arrow lodged itself inside of his waterproof Bible. The next day, he decided to send the fishermen on their way thinking that if he appeared by himself, the Sentinelese would welcome him. Shortly after dawn on November 16th, he set off for shore and was never seen again. 
John Chow died in an attempt to preach the gospel as he understood it in a place he called Satan's last stronghold. A place where none have heard or even had a chance to hear the name of Jesus. Now, how should we interpret such a story? Was John Chow another in a long line of martyrs killed for their desire to preach the gospel in every corner of the world? Or is he, as one Twitter respondent argued, just a dumb American who thought the tribals needed Jesus when the tribals already lived in harmony with God and nature for years without outside interference? Was John motivated by love for the Sentinelese people? One of his friends remarked, if you believe in heaven and hell, then what he did was the most loving thing anyone could do. Or did he willfully disobey the commandment of Jesus Christ? And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Matthew ten fourteen. Is John Chow an example of faith conquering fear? Or was his attempt to preach the gospel to the sentinel leads an example of tempting the Lord? What does it mean to tempt God? The context with which we are most likely familiar is in Satan's temptation of Jesus. Satan suggested Jesus... That if he would cast himself from the pinnacle of the temple, God promises in Psalm 91, angels would come to his rescue. Jesus responds, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Tempting God in this context means expecting him to miraculously intervene in order to save us from potential consequences. Choosing a reckless course of action with the assumption that God will miraculously intervene in order to mitigate the negative consequences of our decision tempts God. Expecting such miraculous intervention is akin to the Pharisees and scribes and multitudes demanding signs from Jesus. In John chapter 6 verse 30, the multitude say to Jesus, What sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven. Show us a sign like the manna in the wilderness and we will believe. It's not that far from send angels to rescue me. Prove to me the promises of your word. Oh God. One man observed to expect God to rescue Jesus makes a mockery of independence and courage and destiny and free will and responsibility. Furthermore, God is in no wise a safety net for the blind. He's not someone to be commanded to perform magic tricks or forced into self-revelation, not even by his own son. A second example happens in Exodus chapter 17, verse number 2. In Exodus 17, 2, Scripture says, Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? 
The children of Israel had left Egypt only weeks before, and as one can imagine, moving millions of people through an arid landscape was a bit of a logistical challenge, especially when it came to food and water. Now, a couple of chapters earlier, in chapter 15, verses 22 through 24, the congregation had spent three days looking for water. They eventually found some that was unsuitable to drink, but God miraculously cleansed it. They ended up in a place with lots of water not long after that, but then they needed food. So God provided manna and quail to sustain them. When we get to chapter 17 and they're complaining about no water, they were tempting God in somewhat a similar way. They were demanding a miracle, but they were also revealing a doubting heart. God had delivered them from the preeminent power in the day of their day in an amazing way. He had proven himself faithful by providing food and water. In spite of these mercies, Israel doubted him and thereby put God in a position to be angry with them. This is what it means to tempt God. Now we might be thinking to ourselves, but scriptures like Psalm 91 promise that God will intervene to preserve and save us from all sorts of trials and troubles. Should we not have faith in the scriptures? In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow before the great idol erected by Nebuchadnezzar, even under the threat of being burned alive. They responded, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand, O King. I I cannot help but wonder, if these three faithful men were thinking of Isaiah 43 too, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. I wonder if they were thinking of it. Regardless, these three men were supremely confident that God was able to deliver them from the fiery furnace. They knew divine intervention was possible. But if not, they continue in verse 18. Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. In spite of the fact that God was able to save them from the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego recognized it was possible he would not choose to do so. Their greater concern was holding on to their integrity at all costs. God commanded, you shall have no other gods before me, and they refused to compromise. They refused to compromise because there were no other options. And they were under no illusions about how their choice might turn out. God was able to save them, but it was possible they were about to die in that fiery furnace. Though they were confident in God's power to deliver them from the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego held to their integrity and accepted the possibility that they might very well die for their faith 
in that furnace. But life rarely places us in such a position. Generally, there are multiple good options available to us, even in a high-stakes situation. After three years in Damascus, Arabia, and then Damascus again, Paul returned to Jerusalem. At first, the church balked at Paul's conversion until Barnabas convinced the church, convinced the brethren to receive him. Once received into their fellowship, Paul demonstrated the genuineness of his conversion by preaching Christ crucified all over Jerusalem. But his presence quickly soured the unbelieving Jews, so much so that they were ready to kill him. As the story goes, the church got wind of their plans and arranged to smuggle Paul out of the city by night. Was it wrong for Paul to run from persecution? Was he showing weak faith by not manning up and facing down the mob? But please bear in mind, Multiple times in his ministry, Jesus escaped from imminent physical danger. And in the case of Paul, there were other Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem who could handle preaching Jesus to the unbelievers. Paul was not abandoning the preaching of the gospel. He was leaving it to men who were better suited to carry on that ministry. And according to Acts chapter 22, verses 18 through 21, Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision and commanded him to leave Jerusalem and take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul was not in a position where he was left with no other choice. Others could shoulder the burden of preaching, and Jesus had another mission for him in mind. But had Paul ignored Jesus and those other possibilities by stubbornly remaining in Jerusalem, Paul would not have been acting in faith. He would have been tempting God. That was not always the case in Paul's life. When Paul was on his final journey to Jerusalem, he was told how it would end. Paul told the Ephesian elders, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Acts 20, verses 22 and 23. When he visited the house of Philip in Caesarea one chapter later, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, When he had come to us, Luke says, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Acts 21, 10 and 11. Paul had escaped before. He'd run away from persecution before. Why was he intent on going to Jerusalem regardless of the cost to himself? In Galatians chapter 2, when Peter, James, and John acknowledged Paul was intended by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles, they urged him to remember the poor, something that Paul said he was very eager to do. 
On this last journey to Jerusalem, Paul and his companions were transporting a gift from the Gentile churches of Galatia, Achaia, and Macedonia to the poor saints in Judea. I believe Paul was passionate about caring for the poor among his fellow Jews. And he wanted, with every fiber of his being, to see this promise he had made fulfilled. He was remembering the poor. Now, Paul was not above changing his mind if he thought the circumstances warranted such a change. But in the case of this gift, Paul seemed to see no other way. He made a commitment. It was a righteous cause. And he wanted to see it through to whatever end the Lord had in mind. And he understood the risks. When the brethren in Caesarea attempted to dissuade him, Paul responds, Why do you, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not only, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul did not expect God to rescue him from the consequences of his decision. He understood the risks, but judged the fulfillment of his commitment, the fulfillment of his promise to be of greater value. Rarely in life are decisions reduced to one or two options. Generally speaking, even in high-stakes situations, there are several alternatives laid out before us. And good reasons to take those alternate routes. But sometimes there is no other path. There is no other alternative. When that's the case, we should proceed forward with the understanding that God is under no obligation to either mitigate the consequences for our choices or miraculously intervene. Yes, He is able to deliver us from evil. But if He chooses not to do so, we should assume the risks which come with walking by faith and doing what we know to be right in all good conscience. Something else to think about. How does God communicate with us in these moments of decision? You know, one of the lessons we can take away from Jesus' temptation is how easily Scripture can be manipulated to serve the desired end. Satan quoted Psalm 91, but it was a quote without context and a quote in isolation. In responding with, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, Jesus shows us how imperative it is to be circumspect in our interpretation of Scripture. How many times have well-meaning, sincere believers in God been been guided by misunderstanding or misapplying a single scripture interpreted in isolation? Such examples should make us wary of expecting God to rescue us on the testimony of a single witness. And in addition, God expects us to take into consideration other information, yes, even outside the Bible. I talked about Josiah this morning. King Josiah wanted to face down the Egyptian army. Pharaoh warned him, don't pick a fight with Egypt. 
What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war, for God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. These were Pharaoh's words to Josiah. Nevertheless, Scripture goes on, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him. And he did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. Second Chronicles 35.22 Now in disguising himself, Josiah shows a level of faith that's inconsistent with the picture of righteousness we see in the remainder of his story. But remember, what did we learn about Israel tempting God? Tempting God can mean doubting God's power. Doubting God's power to provide, this tempts God. That seems to be what Josiah is showing in that moment of weakness. But what's fascinating about Second Chronicles is how it attributes Nico's words to God. Think about the implications. A pagan pharaoh gave Josiah all the information he needed in order to make the right decision. God has given us his word and his spirit dwells in us. He promises to give us wisdom if we ask in faith without doubting. We are created in his image, endowed with intellect and discernment the rest of creation does not possess. Furthermore, it is possible the very information we require to make a wise decision may come from a source we do not expect. There was once a man who lived in a two-story house. The house was near a river and unfortunately the river began to flood. As the river rose, warnings were given via radio, TV, and shortwave. Large jeeps drove through the area to evacuate people. As a jeep drove by the man's house, he was told, You are in danger. Your life is at stake. You must evacuate. Get in the jeep. Let us help you evacuate. No, the man replied from his doorstep. I have faith. I will be okay. God will take care of me. As the story goes on, they attempted to rescue the man by boat and by helicopter. And on each occasion, the man says, God will rescue me. As the man stood before God, having drowned in the flood, he says to God, I had faith, you let me die. To which God replies, I sent you a jeep, a boat, and a helicopter. What more could I have done for you? It's not a true story. It's a parable of sorts. But I think that there's truth to the parable. We want a parting of the Red Sea. That's what we want. We want something so obvious that it makes our decision equal. But God, through his providence, provides options that are mundane easily overlooked and easily dismissed. But those options are not a less effective means of deliverance. 
may be the very information we need to make a wise decision is right in front of us, staring us in the face. Brethren, we must be cautious when interpreting Scripture. We should not take a single passage interpreted in isolation and consequently expect the Lord to act in ways commensurate with our understanding, but contrary to the rest of Scripture. Instead, we should be circumspect. What Josiah needed to know to make a good decision came from the mouth of a pagan pharaoh a highly unlikely source. But if we single-mindedly pursue a course of action, ignore our options, and choose to hold out for a miracle, God will save me. We may end up drowning in disappointment. As I draw this to a close, I'd like to leave you with some thoughts from Martin Luther. Tell me what a good biography of Martin Luther is sometime, Rick. Martin Luther, of course, lived in the 1500s. The bubonic plague, also known as the Black Death, broke out in Wittenberg, Germany, in the summer and fall of 1527. Citizens were advised to leave town so as to avoid the plague. Luther was, at the time, the chair of the theology department at the University of Wittenberg. Along with his pregnant wife, Katharina, Luther elected to remain behind and opened their home to care for the sick. Amazing. Told to leave town, he and his pregnant wife stay behind, open their home to care for the sick. Johann Hess, a pastor of a church in Breslau, Poland, situated 200 miles to the east, wrote to Luther, inquiring if it was okay for Christians to leave a city in order to escape a plague. Though it took him a while to respond, Luther wrote a lengthy reply, which was later published as a pamphlet. His letter is an excellent treatise on the various factors people of faith must consider as they weigh risk, avoid avoid tempting God, and endeavor to walk with clear-eyed, reasonable faith. But the letter also testifies to the follies of human nature, which seems to change very little from century to century. There is indeed nothing new under the sun. Three paragraphs from the letter caught my attention as I was preparing for this lesson, and I'll share those three paragraphs with you. I share it with you not because I think Luther is right in every respect, Rather, I share it because it represents a valid point of view from a man who cared about the Bible and thought deeply about important matters. His perspective is worth listening to and worth giving some consideration. Here are Luther's words about a Christian living through the bubonic plague. Others are much too rash and reckless tempting God and disregarding everything which might counteract death and the plague. They disdain the use of medicines. They do not avoid places and persons infected by the plague, but lightheartedly make sport of it and wish to prove how independent they are. They say that this is God's punishment 
If he wants to protect them, he can do so without medicines or our carefulness. This is not trusting God, but tempting him. God has created medicines and provided us with intelligence to guard and take good care of the body so that we can live in good health. If one makes no use of intelligence or medicine when he could do so without detriment to his neighbor, such a person injures his body and must beware lest he becomes a suicide in God's eyes. By the same reasoning, a person might forego eating and drinking, clothing and shelter and boldly proclaim his faith that if God wanted to preserve him from starvation and cold, he could do so without food and clothing. Actually, that would be suicide. It is even more shameful for a person to pay no heed to his own body and to fail to protect it against the plague the best he is able, and then to infect and poison others who might have remained alive if he had taken care of his body as he should have. He is thus responsible before God for his neighbor's death and is a murderer many times over. Indeed, such people behave as though a house were burning in the city and nobody was trying to put the fire out. Instead, they give leeway to the flames so that the whole city is consumed, saying that if God so willed, he could save the city without water to quench the fire. No, my dear friends, that is not good. Use medicines, take potions that can help you fumigate the house, yard, and street. Shun persons and places wherever your neighbor does not need your presence or has recovered. And act like a man who wants to help put out the burning city. Again, I'm not saying he's right in every respect. It's worth giving some thought. If you're here this evening and you are not a Christian, we invite you to consider what Jesus Christ has done for you. Jesus Christ did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, coming in the form of a bondservant, made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, He was obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Jesus Christ was willing to give up everything so that you could be saved. So that we could be saved. And if you are ready to give up everything in order to follow after him, we're ready to help you. If we can help you obey the gospel this evening, please let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing.